Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. Okay, so in today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about clinical prediction rules. Um, so we want to kind of start with just a few caveats to this um, episode. So first of all, there are quite a few clinical prediction rules, and the ones that we're going to talk about in this episode have all been validated. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean we're saying these are the only ones to know or that you shouldn't look into other ones. Um, we just are trying to make sure that we're, you know, covering topics that we're comfortable with, but also that we, um, you know, feel confident kind of speaking on based on research. So that's why we chose the ones that we're going to go over. We're not saying that these are for sure going to be on your test or they're not going to be on your test or the other ones will or won't. We're just, these are, that's why we chose these because they're validated. Um, and really with these clinical prediction rules, depending on what you're studying from, you'll see them in quite a few places. Um, so there's not a specific place that we're going to point you towards to find them. Um, but there are quite a few different places that you can see them. Um, and the other thing we want to talk about with the clinical prediction rules is use of these both on your test and, um, clinically. So, they're not black and white, you know, there's typically anywhere from, I think, like three to five different um, tests on them. But it doesn't mean that if you don't have everything that they talk about that it's not what's going on with the patient. So um, one of the things that you might look at is there's different sensitivities and specificities based on how many of the signs and symptoms they're showing on these different clinical prediction rules, depending on the CPR. So, um, you know, that's something you can use to kind of help you in your judgment. So whether it's taking the test or when you're looking at a patient in front of you, um, you know, take this information and apply it to them um, in different clusters rather than, okay, they have three out of five, so it must not be that. It does, it's not an all or nothing thing. So we just wanted to make sure we pointed that out. Um, Amanda, what else do you want to add to kind of this beginning conversation? I think that was kind of the most important thing. I think, yeah. you know, we fielded many questions about these, which is kind of why we're circling back to this episode. And a lot of them have been about how to study them, where to study them from, and basically how to interpret them. And I think that Alexis just kind of summed that up. You know, there's many resources you're going to see these. How you choose to organize them is up to you. Um, most people do well with some kind of chart or flashcard with these. Um, but I don't want you to get in the mindset of it's just strict memorization. I mean, you need to know them, but you also need to know how to interpret them and how much weight they're going to carry in your decision-making process. Yep, absolutely. So, um so what I'm going to do, like I said, the ones that we're going to discuss today have all been validated. Um, so we're going to talk through those and then uh, we'll kind of go from there. So the first one we're going to talk about is ankylosing spondylitis. And there's actually two different um, clinical prediction rules that I've seen on this. So the first one um, is the Berlin criteria. And so that includes four different tests. The first is morning stiffness um, for greater than a half hour. Improvement in back pain with exercise, but not with rest. Awakening because of back pain during the second half of the night only. And alternating buttock pain. 
Um, again, you know, I'm not going to get into the specific research articles and sensitivity, specificity and whatnot on this episode. Um, really, I just want to discuss the different signs and symptoms and tests that you're you're looking at with these. Um, but I do think that's something to have to understand um, whether these are more sensitive or specific um, and that sort of thing. So that is the ankylosing spondylitis Berlin criteria. The second ankylosing spondylitis um, CPR is the IBP criteria. And there are five different tests on that. So the first is that the age at onset is less than 40 years old. So these are going to be younger patients. An insidious onset, improvement with exercise, no improvement with rest, and pain at night with improvement on getting up. So there are some, um, some of these tests between these two criteria that obviously overlap. So that should help you a little bit in understanding this diagnosis a little bit better and what you're looking for. Um, but do know that there are two different CPRs for ankylosing spondylitis. Um, do you have anything on that that you want to add, Amanda? No, okay. just be aware there's more than one. More than one. Yep. All right. So the next one that we're going to look at are the um, Ottawa knee rules. So for the Ottawa knee rules, the eight, there's five of these tests that we're going to look at. Age greater than 55. Tenderness at the head of the fibula. Isolated tenderness of the patella during palpation. Inability to flex the knee to 90 degrees and inability to bear weight immediately and upon emergency room evaluation. I should also note that the Ottawa knee rules, they are um, to determine the need for radiographs after acute knee injury, secondary to the risk of fracture. So this is really a knee fracture um, screening tool. The next one that we're going to look at Make sure that we're not, I'm not missing any here. Okay, so we are going to look at the Pittsburgh knee rules next. So the Pittsburgh knee rules, um, same thing. So we're looking at the need for radiographs after acute knee injury, secondary to the risk of fracture. And there are actually um, three things that we're looking at here. So is blunt trauma or a fall as a mechanism of injury. So that um, is kind of the main thing that we're considering. And then it's plus either of the following. So age older than 50 years or younger than 12, or the inability to walk four weight-bearing steps in the emergency department. So if this patient has had um, trauma or a fall, and that's what's caused their, their injury, then you're looking at their age, which would, if they're older than 50 or younger than 12, that's going to indicate the need for radiographs, or if they're unable to walk four weight-bearing steps in the emergency department, then that's going to indicate the need for radiographs. Um, do you have anything to add to those knee rules? No, I, I think sometimes people feel, and vet clinicians say, well, I don't really see, you know, I don't see acute injuries and stuff. I don't see a lot of direct access. Sometimes I think these are important in patients you're already seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, if they've had a fall or something, you know, the morning before they came to see you or the day before, it's still important to be aware of these kinds of screenings right? Um, because you need them for other times too, other than, you know, seeing new patients. Well, and I think too, yeah. So obviously that situation. And the other thing I run into a lot, especially with, um, you know, friends and family, they all know you're a physical therapist and we all know that they're like, oh, I'm going to text you and see, do I need to 
to go to, I can't tell you how many times I've had people, my foot hurts. It hurts right here. Do I need an x-ray? Um, so, you know, these are like simple things that you can consider as well. Um, for screening tools for other people that ask you questions. And, um, you know, I think they're just great to be aware of. And, you know, we're in, I, we live in a direct access state. I think pretty much all of them are direct access now. So I get people who they're referred to me from their personal trainer or, you know, a friend. Um, they don't necessarily see a physician before they come to see me. So um, these are really important to know. All right, so the next one we're gonna go over are the auto ankle rules. And these were developed to determine the need for radiographs after acute ankle injury secondary to the risk of fracture. So again, we're talking about fractures here. So um, there's two different rules. So pain in the malleolar or midfoot area and either, so these are other things we're looking for, the inability to bear weight immediately after the injury and in the emergency department. Again, we're looking at them being unable to take four steps or bone tenderness at the posterior edge of the tibia or fibula or tip of medial or lateral malleolus and bone tenderness at the navicular or proximal base of the fifth, fifth metatarsal. So essentially with this one, we're looking at, you know, where their pain is, that they're unable to bear weight or that they're very tender in these specific um, bony prominences. So anything you want to add to the ankle rules? Nope. Okay. No, yeah. I think no. those are pretty straightforward too. All right. And the next one that we're going to look at are the Canadian cervical spine rules, which we've actually discussed on this podcast before. Um, so you guys have probably all already been aware of this one, um, but we're going to go over them again. So these, um, the Canadian cervical spine rules are also to determine the need for radiographs. And this is after an acute head or neck injury secondary to the risk of fracture. So, um, these are, this is the rule for the Canadian cervical spine rule. So high risk factors would include age greater than 65, a dangerous mechanism of injury. So a fall greater than one meter or five stairs, axial load to the head, high speed motor vehicle accident, motorized recreational vehicle or bicycle collision. And the third um, high risk factor is paresthesias in the extremities. The next part of this is low risk factors that allow safe assessment of range of motion. So if they were in a simple rear-ended motor accident, then it's safe to assess their range of motion. Normal sitting posture in the emergency department, ambulatory at any time since injury, and delayed onset of neck pain and absence of midline tenderness. So those four things are considered low risk factors and they're, um, it's safe to assess their range of motion in that situation. The last thing you're looking at is, is the patient able to actively rotate their neck more than 45 degrees to the right and to the left? So if there's one high risk factor or two low risk factors and the inability to actively rotate the neck greater than 45 degrees to the right and left, then radiographs are indicated. So with this one, um, I mean, I think these things are pretty obvious with the high risk factors. Um, you know, if there's any kind of you know, paresthesias or a dangerous mechanism of, of injury, of course, you want to have imaging of the neck. Um, but when you're looking at those low risk factors, if they're presenting with at least two of those, and their range of motion is limited to um, less than 45 degrees of rotation, then you want to refer them for imaging. So this one, um, you know, I mean, obviously, there's a few different layers to it, but it's a very important one to know. So um, 
anything else you want to add to those? I know we've talked about them in the past. Yeah, no, I would just second those. I, I think that one's a very important one. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have any questions about it or how to interpret it, please don't hesitate to ask us. Yeah. Um, but that one's really important. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and the next one is also very important. So we are going to now talk about the Wells criteria. Um, and that is to predict the presence of a DVT or deep vein thrombosis. Um, and so this, these are your people that you're screening. And I know I've used this one quite a bit. I'm sure you probably have too, Amanda. I have. Yeah. So these are sometimes, go ahead. I was going to say, I just think sometimes, you know, a DVT may present in a patient you don't always expect it in. Um, I just think it's something we need to be better about being hyper aware about. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had a couple of patients end up with them that I've missed and it's been patients that are surprising. So I just think you can't underestimate the value of some of, some of the aspects of the wells. You really need to know it. Well, and in my experience too, I've had quite a few patients who, I've referred and it's come back negative, but they've still been so thankful that I at least was, you know, checked for them. Um, There's some, some peace of mind. And and then there's been times where I've referred and it's come back positive. So um, I think it's definitely one of those things that people would rather be, and you need to be safe rather than sorry. So if you're suspicious, it's always worth that referral. I've um, never had a physician. I've also never had a physician say, oh my gosh, why would you send that person back no, for this? No, me either. They're usually equally as happy to send them for a Doppler. It's really not a big deal. Right. Um, if you have any concern, it's better to be safe than sorry. Absolutely. All right. So with Wells, um, and I'm sure most of you hopefully have seen this before, um, we're looking at different criteria and they're scoring. Um, and most of the criteria is, you know, you give a, a point for that, or um, I guess you would consider them a point. And then it's rated as high probability, moderate, or low. So with these, um, the characteristics, and these are all one point um, that you would add to the score if your patient is presenting with these. So first is active cancer, um, which they say patient receiving treatment for cancer within the previous six months or currently receiving palliative treatment. The next is paralysis, paresis, or recent plaster immobilization of the lower extremities, recently bedridden for three days or more, or a major surgery within the previous 12 weeks requiring general or regional anesthesia, which this is what I've seen. It's typically been like post knee replacement patients that I've sent for, um, I've referred for this. Localized tenderness along the distribution of the deep venous system, the entire leg swollen, Calf swelling at least three centimeters larger than that on the asymptomatic side. And you measure that 10 centimeters below the tubial tuberosity, or I'm sorry, the tibial tuberosity. Um, Pitting edema confined to the symptomatic leg, collateral superficial veins, previously documented DVTs. So those are all one point uh, if they're presenting with any of those. And then the last thing they know is alternative diagnosis, at least as likely as a DVT, would take two points away, Um, which, again, that's up to your clinical judgment what you think that alternative diagnosis might be. So if they have more than three of these or if they have more than three points at the end of this, then there's a high probability of DVT. One to two is a moderate probability. And if they score zero on this, obviously, there's a low probability of, of DVT. So like I said, that one's super, super important to know. 
Um, and, and I'm sure it's something we've probably all used clinically. Anything else that you wanted to discuss? No, not necessarily. Just make sure you're aware of that one for sure. Yeah. Yep. All right. And the next one we're going to talk about is pulmonary embolism. So, um, this is, um, test criteria to identify patients that have an increased probability of having a pulmonary embolism, um, based on these characteristics. So these are kind of different points. Um, so the Wells is pretty straightforward on, you know, one point for everything. This, this is a little bit different. So, um, with this one, if the patient is age 65 years or over, that's one point. A previous DVT or pulmonary embolism would be three points. Surgery or fracture within a month, that's two points. Active malignant condition is two points. Unilateral lower limb pain is three points. Um, if their heart rate is 75 to 94 beats per minute, that's an addition of three points. And if it's 95 or more beats per minute, then that's plus five points. Um, pain on deep palpation of the lower limb and unilateral edema would be plus four. And then, um, they talk about hemoptysis is plus two points as well. So, um, you know, you want to look at all those different things. And obviously if they're scoring pretty high on this, then there's of course concern for pulmonary embolism. Um, so those are pretty straightforward. I think probably the toughest part of that is looking at how many points they get for each, thing, but, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of graded based on how, um, you know, those different symptoms, how closely they're related to pulmonary embolism. Do you have anything you want to add to that? No, not necessarily. That's a pretty straightforward one too. Um, all right. And then the last one is SI joint pain. So there's a couple, um, different rules. And, and I think depending on where you're looking, there might even be a third that I don't have in front of me, Amanda. So you'll have to let me know if I'm missing one, but, um, I'm looking at Laslett and Vanderwerf. And so the Laslett, and they're basically the same. There's one difference between these two. Um, so you're looking at SI distraction, SI compression, the thigh thrust test, Gainsland's test, and then Laslett says sacral thrust and Vanderwerf says Patrick sign, which is the favor. Um, and so, you know, looking at greater than, than three of these variables, um, there's different levels of sensitivity and specificity. So this is definitely one of those you want to look at the cluster. I typically run my patients through, you know, all five and, and on that fifth one, I'll, depending on the patient, choose which one I want to do. Um, and if I'm still not really sure, you might try the other one, but that's just my clinical approach to it. So I don't know if there's anything that you want to add on that. No, I, I think those are the two clusters to help um, rule in or rule out SI involvement. Mm-hmm. There is another cluster that goes over determining what type of dysfunction. Okay. Maybe that's what I was Um, thinking of. Yeah. That's a little bit of a little bit more gray area. I think. Gotcha. Um, I think one thing I want to comment on when we talk about SI testing though, is, you know, you can watch YouTube and you watch all different types of resources and stuff. I think you're going to see some variations into how some of these tests are performed. 
Um, Mm -hmm. Clinically, certainly that makes a difference. You know, everybody learns SI stuff a little bit differently. It depends where you've done some continuing ed in this area, that kind of a thing. Um, Yeah. In terms of these clusters, I think you really need to go back to their original research article to see how they're performing that component mm-hmm. and then decide, yes, I'm doing it correctly. No, I'm not. In terms of preparing for your OCS exam, I don't know how critical it is that you know the exact methodology of how they're performing those specific tests or components of the clusters. Um but I just wanted to put that out there. I, that's sometimes something I feel like it's a question that comes up. People mm-hmm. ask, you know, well, how do you do SI distraction versus compression? You know, sometimes what we're all doing is the same thing, but we're naming it differently. Sure. Um, so I, I just think clinically be aware of that. I don't know so much for your test preparations if it matters that significantly. Right. Yep, I agree. And then... Um... Amanda, the other one is the hip osteoarthritis that was in the the clinical practice guideline. Yes. Um, So I can't remember. Did we talk about that one in that episode? Um, I believe we did. Um, I do know, too, that current concepts for the hip outlines this very well, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Which diagnostic criteria you really want to be looking at to rule in or rule out hip osteoarthritis. Um, I I'd have to go back to current concepts. I haven't read the hip current concepts in a little while. Yeah. Um, but I believe they go over um, Altman's criteria. Okay. I was going to say, I feel like there's a few. So I think it's probably most appropriate to refer you to those resources to look at them. Um, I would agree. Because there are a couple different ones. So, and, and they're a little bit different. And, yeah. And as with like this SI one you're going to see some overlap. Mm -hmm. I know for me, when I was studying these specifically for my test, um, it was easier for me to know what was different about them for some of these, because some of the overlap can be enough that it gets confusing to remember. Sure. Um, But one thing I want to point out too, when you're talking about like cluster testing and we're looking at clinical prediction rules and how do we decide if this is relevant or not? um, I, I think one thing to look at is likelihood ratios um, you know, a positive likelihood ratio, the higher the positive likelihood ratio, the more likely it is to be a factor, if that makes sense. So yes. the higher the likelihood ratio, you know, if you're having three or four components out of five, for example, and that's got a likelihood ratio of seven or eight, for example, pretty good likelihood that that's, you can kind of gear your clinical reasoning and your mind thought towards that. Mm-hmm. Versus if it's two or three and it has a low likelihood ratio, you probably need to keep your clinical reasoning a little more broad and be a little bit more aware that it may be some other other issues going on in the case or in the cl- in the clinical setting, whatever the case may be. Yep. Yep, I agree. So, all right. So, as always, if you guys have questions, uh, you can shoot us an email. Um, Otherwise, like we mentioned, you know, you can find these different clinical prediction roles through all the different resources. Um, If you're not sure what resources to look for, look back at the very first episode we did. We talk about a lot of different resources that are out there for studying for the OCS. Um, So you'll see these among those different resources. Yes, Um, I will say we've been fielding quite a few more emails. So um, Mm -hmm. please feel free to send them along. We're more than happy to help answer questions may just take us a day or so to get back to them. 
Um, yeah. We're both working full time too. So I promise we see them. We're just, sometimes I, I typically answer the emails. I just mm-hmm. often want to collaborate with Alexis before I get back to you, make sure we're on the same page, make sure she doesn't have anything to add, but please feel free to send them along. Yep. And good luck. Keep studying. We're getting close for the people taking it this year. So just keep mm-hmm. at it. Alrighty. All right. Thank you.